We're about to learn an amazing insight into how to see the good in your fellow Jew. And it's going to be something we derive from a halacha about the Mizbochos and how they did not become impure. The debate around that and then an incredibly fascinating theme of debates between Beisilal and Beishamai that illustrate how a Jewish person is supposed to look at any scenario, whether it be in halacha or whether it be in the spiritual value of the next person. We know that the Pasuk that instructs us to first build the Mishkan in the desert and subsequently the base Hamikdash, it's Ve'osuli Mikdash. The Torah says, Make for me, Hashem says, a Mikdash. The Pasuk immediately clarifies, What is the goal of this structure that we're supposed to build for Hashem? Says the Pasuk, That Abisha says, I want to dwell amongst you. Which, on the face of it, means, that Hashem intends to dwell within the space that we construct for Him, the Beis HaMikdash. Now, one of the primary things that we did in order to serve Hashem in the Beis HaMikdash, according to the Rambam, it is the epicenter of the Beis HaMikdash, is to bring Karbonus offerings to Hashem. As the Rambam says, why is there Beis HaMikdash? In order to be able to serve Hashem. And how do we do that? By bringing offerings to Hashem and having a constant fire on the Mizbech. So therefore you can assume that the Mizbech must be a very central piece of the Beis HaMikdash. So it's self-understood. The outdoor Mizbech where they brought sacrifices, which is detailed at the end of this week's parasha, as well as the internal which we'll only learn about in next week's parasha. Either way, those two have to be absolutely central elements of the base Amigdash, which means that if we analyze these two Mizbachos, we're going to learn very important things about the base Amigdash and about our service of Hashem generally. As we very well know, commenting on the Pasuk, that the Ebesha says, Make for me a Mikdash and I will dwell within you. Amr Chazal, the Chazal famously says, The Ebesha doesn't say, I'm going to dwell in it, that place. Within you. That the intention is for the Ebesha to become part and parcel of every one of our lives. That means that each of us is supposed to dedicate ourselves in such a way that we become a sanctuary for Hashem. So if I'm supposed to become a Mikdash for Hashem, that means that I have to invest the effort and I have to put in the necessary steps, take the necessary steps in order to become a place that is suitable for divine expression for Hashem's presence. So we now have to analyze the Mizbeach, which is central to the concept of the Beis HaMikdash. In, in order to understand something very important about the Beis HaMikdash, which we could then reflect back on ourselves, because we have the responsibility to recreate that reality in our own lives. So, one of the places where the Chazal discuss these two Mizbochis, which in turn will help us understand what the two altars illustrate about our service of Hashem and how we become this conduit for godliness. Who Basim Masechta Chagiga is at the end of Masechta Chagiga, and this will be a Siyam on that Masechta. So, what does it say there? The first part of the Sikha, you have to hold cop just to keep certain information clear so that it remains, you know, part of your understanding of the rest of the Sikha. So, 
The Mishnah at the end of Chagiyah says as follows that there were times that there was tourism in the Beis Hamikdash and people kind of looked around and maybe touched things that they shouldn't have touched. So therefore, any utensil in the Beis Hamikdash had to be immersed in a mikveh. After Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkos, because there were so many people filing through and they wanted to see what the Beis Hamikdash was all about, and there might have been people who were not conscious of the halachas and they didn't know that they were impure and they might have touched things, so they all have to be put into the mikveh to be sure. With two exceptions. With the exception of the two altars, they do not have to be immersed in a mikveh after Yom Tov. And the question is, why? So there will be two opinions. One opinion is, it's because they are considered like earth. Earth can never be contaminated by impurity. So the Mizbech is compared to earth in the Psukim and the Torah. So therefore, it also is not susceptible to impurity. So we all agree that they don't have to be immersed. They don't have to be purified. Question is, why? Rabbi Leza says, because they're considered like earth. The Chachamim have a more controversial opinion. They say it's because they're coated. The inner Mizbech is coated with gold. The outer Mizbech is coated with copper. So therefore the Gemara says, hang on a second, let's analyze this. Let's start at the beginning. The Gemara says, why does he hold what he holds? How do we know that a Mizbech is considered to have the same Malachic status as earth itself, which cannot be contaminated? Can't be contaminated. Says the Gemara because Mizbech and Echoshes to receive Mizbech Adamo Tasseli. When it comes to the outer Mizbech, the Torah says very clearly it should be a Mizbech of earth. Well, there you have it. The Torah called it a Mizbech of earth to illustrate that it has the same halachic considerations as earth itself. But what about the Mizbech Azov? Because there the Torah tells us another reference Hamenora Vehamizbochois. Usually when we list the various elements of the of the base amigdash we list them independently. But when we talk about the Mizbech, we put them both into one category, Hamizbochois plural, Iskush Mizbochois Elozes, says the Gemara. Rabbi Eliezer believes that the Torah therefore in, uh, uh, relates the two Mizbochois to each other. So now we know that the Mizbech Azov must be the same status as the Mizbech Anachoishes, i.e., it is considered like earth and cannot become impure. So Rabbi Eliezer's opinion is clear. Why is the Mizbech exempt from having to be immersed in order to purify it? Because it could never become impure in the first place, because it is like the earth. The Chachamim, a little bit more tricky. The Gemara continues, where we quote in the Gemara what the Chachamim said in the Mishnah, that the reason the Mizbochis are not impure is because they're coated either with gold or with copper. So at first glance, it sounds like the Gemara understands the Mishnah that the Chachamim agree with Rabbi Eliezer that the Mizbochis cannot become impure. And the reason is why? Because they are covered. Hikshabi Gemara asks the Gemara at the Rabbah. The logic dictates the exact opposite. Surely the fact that they have metallic outer shells should make them impure. Gold can become impure. Copper can become impure. Why are you using that as an explanation of why they're not Tomei? That's why they should be Tomei. Apirish Rashi, as Rashi says, Rashi says an interesting thing. Let's assume that they were not coated. Then we'd have another excuse why they can't become Tomei. Because if you have a very large wooden structure that cannot be moved, it doesn't have the status of a keli of a vessel, and therefore cannot become impure. Maybe that's the reason they should become, they should be exempt from purification. So then the Gemara offers two possible explanations for the opinion of the Chachamim. Vetiritu. 
First suggestion is that it's actually a debate that the Rabbanon disagree with Rabbi Eliezer and they say actually the Mizbachos did become impure. Why? Because they've got the coating of metal and metal is susceptible to tumor. So according, if we go to that particular explanation, then we're suggesting that the Chachamim disagree with Rabbi Eliezer and they would require some kind of purification process for the Mizbachis. Then Ratiritz Noisaf, the Gemara, offers another suggestion. Or you could say the Rabbanon are not actually giving their own opinion. The Rabbanon were responding to Rabbi Eliezer who says that the Mizbachis are not impure. My daitech, what do you think? Mishum demitsupin. If you're worried that they are coated with metal, don't worry. Miftel bottle tzipuyon gabayhu. The reality is that it's a thin veneer of either gold or copper, and therefore it is bottle. It loses its own independent value, and the coating is now considered like the Mizbech. You, Rabbi Eliezer, say that the Mizbech is considered like earth, which is correct, because the Torah says so, and earth cannot become impure. Don't worry about the coating. The coating is bottle. So, Rashi says, what exactly in the second opinion did the Rabbanon have to say anything in the first place? Why? Why are they commenting on Rabbi Eliezer's opinion? Says Rashi, my what does it mean? What's your opinion? Because effectively the Rabbanon are asking, wait, Rabbi Eliezer, why do you say that the only reason these Mizbachis are not Tame is because the Torah calls them earth? You could have said they're large structures that you don't move, so therefore they're not considered utensils, and if they're not utensils, they can't become tummy. So that was the question that Rabbanon had in the second view of the Gemara to Rabbi Eliezer, and they answer, Well, the truth is because they're coated with a metallic substance. So if they're coated with gold or, or with copper, you cannot call them wooden structures. They're not. They're metallic structures, which means they should be susceptible to tumor. So therefore, the Rabbanon have to say, in case anybody would challenge Rabbi Eliezer and say, Hey, these are not wood, they're metal, and they should be kantame, will answer on his behalf. That outer coating is insignificant because it's just a coating. The Torah considers the Mizbeach still like a wooden structure. And the outer coating loses its own independent status. And therefore, despite the coating of gold or of copper, the Mizbachos are still considered to be as if they were wood and therefore not susceptible to impurity. That's Rashi. So let's be clear about this. It's very important information. Rashi sees that the Rabbanon had to defend Rabbi Eliezer, that you might have thought that, hey, I don't need this whole explanation that they're like Adama. Yes, you do, because there's a coating, and we needed to explain why the coating does not Make them tummy. The Rambam disagrees. Whereas the Rambam says when the Chachamim explain that because they are coated in either gold or copper, that's why they are not tummy. They do not, the Rambam says that the Chachamim were not coming over here to, to give an alternative or a potential option to, to have raised a question against Rabbi Elias that we now have to mitigate. Rather, according to the Rambam, 
the Rabbanon put forward the coating as a reason for it to be tahor. In other words, Rashi says, the Rabbanon said, whoa, you would have asked Rabbi Eliezer, surely the gold on the outside of the Mizbeach makes it tamay? And he'll defend himself, say, it's bottle. Says the Rabbanon, that's not what the Rabbanon were doing. The Rabbanon say the fact that it's coated, that is the reason it can't become tamay. Why? So, in order to understand the Rambam's view, there's a Sifra that quotes the Pasuk that says, any vessel that is used to do work, so Yochol, that can become Tomei. Says the Sifra, Yochol Shani Marbes Chipuyei Maybe you think that something which coats a vessel is in itself considered susceptible to impurity. Talmud Loimar Bohem. Therefore the Torah says, Asheyei Bohem. If the vessel is used for work, then it is something that can become Tomei. If the covering, the coating of a vessel is made from a material that ordinarily could become impure, if it's only as a cover, it is not susceptible to impurity. So therefore the Rambam is of the view that if nothing touches the actual vessel, you only touch the, touch the coating of the vessel, it cannot become Tomei. Now that's really important. So the Rambam's view is that Rabbi Eliezer and the Rabbanon have two opposite views. According to Rabbi Eliezer, it's quite possible that the external coating of a vessel would make it susceptible to Tumah. The Mizbachis are an exception because the Torah calls them Mizbach Adama. Whereas the Rabbanon are saying, no, the fact that it's a coating is already reason enough why it can't become Tomah. The coating is actually the excuse, the, the way to preserve the purity of this particular vessel. So in analysis, so the, the, the commentaries make the following point. The Pirish Miftel bottled Tzipun and the Gabayu, the expression that the Chachamim used, which was that the coating is bottled to the Kaili, well, that doesn't seem to make sense anymore. It seems that the coating is the reason not to be like the Kaili. So we have to explain it as follows. Even though it is metal, and metal is usually very susceptible to tumor. That metal cannot turn a keli, which should not have ordinarily become tome, to now become tome because they are just a coating. We made a bottle of keli. They don't have the dominant role. They are bottled. They service the vessel. It doesn't make any sense that something which services the vessel should now dictate the nature of the vessel. So if this vessel, if this misbeach made of wood would not normally become susceptible to impurity because it creates us because it's a large structure made out of wood, the fact that it's now coated with a metallic substance is not going to be reason enough to change its nature. To the contrary. He has an incredible thought. You've got a vessel that is a receptacle, which means it normally could become impure. Now it cancels its ability to become impure. Why? Because there is no direct contact between the vessel and the impurity. Instead, there's a barrier of this substance, this coating. And the rule of thumb is that any coated item is now protected from impurity. So therefore, 
it's very clear then that Rashi and the Rabbanon completely disagree, sorry, Rashi and the Rambam completely disagree on how the Rabbanon understand why a coated vessel, in this case the Mizbochos, is protected from impurity. If I look from Rashi's perspective, turns out Rashi would say fundamentally metal coating to a wooden object should now make it susceptible to Tumah. Except, but the Mizbochis are an, are an exception because the Torah voiced a different view of, of what they are. The Torah called them wood. Whereas the Rambam says the opposite. The fact that it is coated is the reason why it's not susceptible to impurity. If that's the case, we have to understand what Tzorch Lohavin what is the Rambam's logic? Why did the Rambam not want to explain the debate between Rabbi Lezer and the Chachamim in the same way as Rashi did? Especially when you consider that the language used by the Gemara Especially when you consider that at the end of the day, the language in the Gemara sounds much more aligned with Rashi's commentary than with the Rambam's commentary. So why does the Rambam take a different view, which is quite a surprising view, that the moment a keli, which could have become impure, is coated, it is now suddenly not impure. There's a well-established custom that when you complete a Masechta, you link up the end and the beginning of the Masechta. We don't just do this to show off uh, you know, how academic we are or how brilliant we are. It's because the, the reality is that the beginning and the end of a Masechta is always fundamentally linked. And we're going to do the same over here with the Masechta Chagiga because they are, the beginning and end are intrinsically linked. In order to do that, let's analyze what's the Rambam's motivation for his unusual aloha that the minute something is coated, it is no longer susceptible to Tumor. The answer to that is, that this debate between Rabbelez and the Chachamim is fundamentally a Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai debate. The Rabbi Leza Shamoisi, whom in Talmud Beis Shammai, but we know that Rabbi Leza was one of the students of, of Beis Shammai. And so therefore, the debate over here is Tluyo Bemachloikas Beis Shammai Beis Hillel Besfora Klolis. In order to understand the debate between Rabbi Leza and the Chachamim in this scenario, we actually have to understand a universal difference of view of Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai. It's a universal view that, in, that influences many of their debates that, <clears throat> that in each of these debates, they each follow their specific universal outlook. In fact, we're going to see that there's one in at least each Seder of Mishnais. Klaimar. It's very common when we look at many of the debates between Beis Hill and Beis Shammah that we see common themes of their debates. As we find in many areas of discussion in the Gemara along the opinions of Beis Hill and Beis Shammah. It's quite logical to say that the specific debates between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai do not hinge solely on the content, the context of what they're arguing about, but rather, 
There is a premise that Beis Hillel has. There's a premise that Beis Shammai has. And because of that, they debate all kinds of areas of halacha. As we often find in the Gemara, that we determine that two sides of an argument fit a generalized, universal view of their perspective on halacha. So therefore the Rebbe is going to bring out out of each of the six Sidorim of Mishnah one debate at least between Basilil and Beishamai that will illustrate this overarching view that they have which will help us to understand the Rambam's take on this particular case. And it's not going to go necessarily in order of the Sidorim of Mishnah but rather in a logical order where the idea becomes clearer with each example. So, there's a debate between Basil and Beishamai and Gemara Brochus. What is the Broch you say over the Havdala candle? Beishamai says, that Hashem created the singular light of fire. Whereas Basil says that Hashem creates various kinds of fire. Why the debate? So the Gemara explains. According to Beis Shama, you look at a candle, what do you see? There's one light of a candle, the light of the candle. Which effectively means that there's only one color, in a sense, that represents the flame of the candle. Therefore, the way you say the brocha is in the singular to represent the single light or single color of light of the candle. There are various, there's blue flame, orange flame, white flame. And in fact, the Gemara quotes another place where Basil says as much. They said there are many shades of color in a flame of a candle. Red, white, greenish. Therefore you say, plural, the lights of the candle. Now, it's self-explanatory that Beishamai knew that there is more than one shade of light to the flame of the candle. So what on earth are they arguing about? They're obviously not arguing about the facts on the ground. Because the fact is we do see different shades of flame in a candle. So how could Beishamai argue that there's just one single color of the candle? who the explanation is. And this is going to set the tone for the entire conversation. holds as an axiom that the Torah will always determine the reality and therefore the halacha of something based on its general theme. Based on first observation. What you see at first glance, that's what counts. Which is similar to the principle that a judge can only judge based on what the judge sees. So Beishama says, look, what do you see? You see a flame. Okay, a flame, singular. Therefore, the broch is singular. Hila says, no, no, no. The way you have to analyze something is look at the details, look at the context, drill down, understand exactly what's going on. Even if there are details that you don't notice at first glance. You have to investigate, look deeper. 
According to Beisilo, that's what determines the halachic status of something, is all of the detail and all of the context. Which explains their debate. Under what circumstances do you say a brocha over a havdola candle? Says the Gemara, you only say the brocha over the light of the havdola candle after you have enjoyed some benefit from its light. Which means one of two things. Either potentially the light could do something for you, or practically you've turned off all the other lights in the house and you're actually benefiting from the light of the Avdolah candle. No, it's pretty obvious that to get benefit from the candle, it's the light that gives you the benefit. Which is exactly Beishamah's argument. Look, what gives you the benefit? The light. Not the shades of light. The light gives you benefit. One light gives you benefit. Therefore, the Beishamai says, you're getting benefit from a light, so you say a brocha over a singular light. Whereas Beishil says, whoa, one second. If you're going to look at that candle, you're going to notice the orange and the blue and the, the white. So now you realize, actually, I'm benefiting from a range of different lights. Once I pay attention, once I look at what's going on, therefore the brocha has to acknowledge the multiple experiences of the light. Now that's going to frame it for us. Beis Shammai will determine all circumstances and therefore all halacha based on first glance and the general concept. Beis Hillel will always look for the detail and things that are not immediately evident and the context. Likewise, very famous and intriguing debate between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai and Masech Ksuvis about weddings. How do you celebrate and dance in front of the kala? Beishamai says, say it like you see it. As Rashi says, The praise you give to the groom is relative to the real life circumstances of his bride. Whereas Beishil will say, always give a good report. Always praise her to high heaven to her husband. Let's say she's disabled or she's blind. You're going to say, wow, what a beautiful bride. There's an explicit instruction in the Torah, avoid false statements at all costs. How can you say such a thing? You're not honest, Beisilo. Beisilo retorts, According to you, Let's say somebody made a purchase in the marketplace and it wasn't the best purchase. Should you praise his choice or ridicule his choice? Logic says, make the guy feel good. He made a purchase, make him feel good about his purchase. Now, do Beis Hillel not believe that you should avoid false statements? It's clear that Beis Hillel does believe as much as Beis Shammai does. And in fact, Beis Shammai would also acknowledge that if somebody buys something from the shops, go over and say, well, very nice, I like what you bought. So why are they arguing? 
ההסבר הוא שגם כאן אז לשיטה סייו, let's plug in the same שיטה, the same universal views of בייסיל ובי שמאי that we learned about half dollar candles, plug it in over here. Are you looking at the bigger picture or are you looking at the detail? שיטס בי שמאי, קולנט בי שמאי, יש להסייחס, לכל דבר כפי שנראה מיד. בי שמאי says, what meets the eye, that's what you comment on. נא לפי המבט הראשון הכללי, first glance. וכן, שבקלה זה ימי לסנובח סודי ניקורס לעין. So Beis Shammai looks at this bride and says, I don't see this beautiful character or beautiful appearance. So therefore, why would you say those things if you don't see them? Why would you praise them for things that you don't notice? Therefore, Beis Shammai says, whatever you do see about it, that's what you choose to praise. Beis looks from a different perspective and says, Think about it. Look at the context. In this groom's eyes, he chose this woman. There's no question that in his mind, he thinks she's the most beautiful person. So, tell him that. Acknowledge that. And by the way, that would... Explain how the Gemara continues the conversation thereafter where it says, From here we learn that a person should always make effort to ensure that they are in a good place with other people. Because one of the most important realizations that this story shows us is that we don't all think, feel, or see things the same way. So therefore, So therefore you have to value somebody for their uniqueness. They don't, they don't have the same taste as you. Fine. You can't argue about these things. They're personal. Acknowledge and value somebody for their taste. Similar to the concept that don't judge somebody until you've been in their place and there are many, many things that could constitute their place. And then you could be in a good space and have a nice connection, even with people who are, so to speak, lowly people. We, did, we derive that from what Basil is saying. He thinks she's a beautiful woman, so endorse that. So therefore, as far as Basil is concerned, this is not a problem of mitvar sheket tirchok. You're not lying. It's true. For this groom... This bride is absolutely beautiful. What I'm saying is true in his world. Whereas Beishamai says, it's got nothing to do with the individual. You don't drill down into the specifics. You look at the broad picture at first glance. <laughs> Let's be honest. A person who is disabled is not what classically is called beautiful. And that's why Beishamai is uh, quite... Cagey about it and says that might constitute a false statement. So we now have two examples that illustrate Beis Shammai's perspective is let's look at how things appear in the most obvious way and Beis Hillel says let's do some homework. Now so far we've spoken about Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai which is a whole academy of, of thinkers but if you really want to see that this is the universal perspective let's go to the original protagonists themselves how did the original Hillel and the original Shammai think about these things and we'll find that 
In two scenarios where you rarely see their views. One interesting example is where you find Shammai taking a more lenient approach than Hillel, which is most unusual, but you suddenly realize it's because Shammai is willing to see the broader picture, whereas Hillel is very fixated on the details. And the other will be a scenario where we see that uh, it's, it's how they actually behaved in conduct, not just in the theory of the academy of learning, how they actually treated real life situations. So, in Masechta Edis, which is all about testimony, including scenarios where we use uh, evidence to determine a halacha. So there's a very interesting debate between, between Shammai himself and Hillel himself, and Shammai is more lenient than Hillel. Fascinating. Shammai Omer. Shammai says, as an axiom, kol hanoshim dayan shaitan. That any woman, if uh, she finds that she is bleeding, she can, so to speak, calculate from that point forward that she's impure. Hillel Omer, Whereas Hillel says, no, no, no. When last did she check to see if she was in a state of purity? We'll retroactively consider her impure all the way back to the last time that she checked to see her status. According to Shammai, if a woman gets her period and now touches something which was in a state of purity, it only becomes impure from that day or that moment forward. But not retroactively. She doesn't affect anything that she may have touched in the last few hours or days. Whereas Hillel says, let's work out when last we knew for sure because of an objective analysis, a check that she did. Anything she touched subsequent to that, it must be retroactively considered impure. Hillel is stricter than Shammai in this case is most unusual. So the Gemara explains, Shammai's logic is, We always establish things based on the chazaka, what we expect the status to be. So let's give the woman her expected status. What status do we expect? We expect that most of the time a woman is in a state of purity. So therefore, until we have evidence to the contrary, this is Edios, until we have evidence to the contrary, we assume she's pure. So if she touched pure items in the past and we had no reason to believe that anything had happened to make her impure, we assume her chazaka, her status quo. Hillel says, yes, you're right. We usually do rely on the status quo unless the cause of the problem comes from the item or, in this case, the person that you're trying to establish a status quo. Whereas a woman, she sees a flow from her own body that makes her impure. Therefore, we do not establish her current or her immediately prior status based on a status quo. No, there's a problem that emerged from her own biological process. We don't know. Perhaps that already started a few days ago. So again, you see the same universal code filters through into this particular debate. Shammai says, we'll make decisions based on what we see, 
Now we see that she's bleeding. Or what we don't see, that an hour ago she wasn't bleeding. So we didn't see anything. Nothing happened. And therefore, as far as Shammai is concerned, this moment is what counts. When she actually begins to bleed, but not before that. Because if we haven't seen any blood, we have no reason to uh, remove her status quo of purity. Whereas Hill says, The analysis of any scenario cannot rely only on what the eye sees. We need to investigate and to think and to extrapolate. So let's work it out, says Hillel. Why is she bleeding now? Because it's a biological process that is to her detriment that happens in her body. This is a natural process that we expect on a regular basis. How can you say there's a status quo of purity if part of the natural ebb and flow of her life is that from time to time she'll bleed? And therefore we have to be pretty strict because we don't know what happened for certain over the last few days and retroactively consider anything that you may have encountered and touched as potentially impure. Same universal principle. Do we look at the obvious or do we look at what has to be analyzed and extrapolated? And now we have the story. Because a story is always very compelling. That's how they behave and practice, not just what they argued theoretically in the academies. In the Three scenarios of an individual who wanted to convert to Judaism and first approached Shammai was rejected and then went to Hillel. In one scenario, Omar Anochri, the potential convert, said, I would like to convert to Judaism on condition that we only learn the scriptures. I'm not interested in this whole oral Torah concept. Second scenario, probably the most famous, is where the prospective convert said to Shammai, teach me the whole Torah as I stand here on one foot. In the third scenario, he said, There was a prospective convert that said, I'd like to convert to Judaism and one day be the Kohen Gadol himself. In the, all three scenarios, Shammai basically showed them the door. Whereas Hillel accepted them into his conversion program and they became Gerit Zedek. This really doesn't make sense. Either way you look at it, it makes no sense. Let's be honest. We know that we're not in the proselytizing game. We don't encourage conversion and we don't make it easy to convert. Especially in these scenarios. Where these prospective converts are putting conditions on the table that are completely inappropriate. You don't come and say, I would like to be Jewish on my terms. Surely it's logical that if a person says, I would like to become a convert in order that I should have some prominent position in the community, we say, that's not what it's all about. Goodbye. And if a person says, I want to convert, but I don't want to keep all of what the Torah says, we say, forget about it. That is fundamentally flawed. So how on earth did Hillel accept these people as gay? 
And if on the other hand, it was appropriate to accept these individuals and to convert them, because that's how the story ends, they became genuine converts. Well, if that's the case, why did Shammai push them all away? This explanation is, same universal code. Shammai looks at the scenario. What is the scenario that meets the eye? What is the general theme of how they're approaching this conversion? In each case, their general approach was inappropriate with conditions and looking for position in the community. So he says, sorry, I cannot help you. This is not the way we do Geras. But Hillel takes a different approach, which is Don He says, Let's analyze. Why do you why do you want to become a Kohen Godel? What do you mean by the Torah on one foot? What's your issue with the oral Torah? And after having that conversation and doing that analysis, he discovered that in spite of their outer appearances, these Garim actually were genuine. The reason that they said the apparently ridiculous things that they said was actually for tangential reasons. They didn't understand what a Kohen Godel is. They thought it was a nice thing to have or whatever their particular issue was. So once he drilled down, he got more detail and context, accept them as Geirim. We're going to see the same theme apply in the Gemara Chulin. Where it says as follows, according to Beishamai, according to Beishamai, you could put fowl, chicken, turkey, whatever it is, on the same table that you're eating cheese, as long as you don't eat them together. Beishil says, not only may you not eat them together, you don't put them on the same table. Why? Beishamai says, look at things at face value. Putting an item on a table is putting an item on a table. And nowhere in the Torah does it say, Thou shalt not put chicken and cheese on the same table. There is no prohibition against putting the two on the table. So, go ahead and do it. But Basilel says, One second, don't look at this so superficially. Let's understand and extrapolate what could happen when you have those two things sitting on the same table. So let's think of what might happen. Putting the chicken onto the same table as the cheese is potentially a cause of what? Because people are pre-wired to do what's wrong, unfortunately. If we allow somebody to put both of those items onto the same table, the person might actually eat them together. Same principle. Beis Shammai says, just look at what's happening. Beis Hillel says, look at what could happen. And and then let's get to the one that is most directly related to our conversation, which is a Mishnah in Taharis. There's a debate as follows. The covers of Sforim, like a Sefer Torah, it's got a beautiful cover, right? Beishamai says the cover of a Torah scroll can become impure. End of story. I don't get into the details of what it looks like. 
says, no, what it looks like makes a big difference. If they've got beautiful tapestry on the outside, they would not become impure. But if they just blank, then they would become impure. Now we've got to understand why. So the Ragachava explains why. And he explains that based on a teaching of the Ravid, that there's a difference between a container and a cover. Now, at first glance, it might not sound like there's a major difference. A container is designed to protect whatever you put or preserve whatever you put inside it. Therefore, it is susceptible to impurity because it's considered something that is, that is of use to a human being. But something which is a coating, a cover, that's for beauty. That's not something that we actually use. It's not something functional. And therefore, it does not receive impurity. So now, once we understand this principle, let's go back to the argument between Beis Hillel and Beis this is their debate. If I've got a beautiful ornamental cover for a Torah. If it's got some kind of beautiful tapestry on it, then I know that the intention of that cover is to make the Torah look beautiful. If that's the case, then it falls into the category of something which is a cover, a coating, a decoration. Decorations don't become impure. But if there's no design on the cover, so it's therefore not made for appearances, then it is susceptible to impurity. Why? Because it's now functional. And anything which is functional becomes Tome. Beishamai says, makes no difference. Ornate, not ornate, who cares? Why? There's Machlokos moving up here. No, well, now we know why. Beishamai says, you look at something based on its generalized presentation. What is this? I look at it. What is it? It's a cover. I don't have to get into further detail. It's a cover. That's what I need to know. And therefore, Therefore, their generalized purpose of a cover is preservation and protection. That's why you cover the Torah, so it won't get full of dust or eaten by moths. So if I don't get what it looks like, it is a functional item and therefore susceptible to impurity. says, we always have to look at the detail and the context. Look at what's specific about this particular cover. So in this particular debate, the nature of what the cover looks like will tell me the story of what it was intended for. So... If they have beautiful designs, then I know that their goal is beauty for the Torah. Therefore, they classify as a cover. key teaching here. The cover is neutralized by its purpose. It doesn't stand as an independent object. It is now considered part of the scroll. It's not considered a utensil. And therefore, it's pure. 
But if there's no design, then I know I know that the kava is not there to add beauty to the safer within it. It must therefore be a container to protect and preserve. Ah, so it's a functional item of its own. It could therefore be susceptible to impurity. That will help us to understand the Rambam's take on the debate between Rabbi Lezer and the Chachamim because we're about to discover that the Rabbonon follow Beis Hillel's opinion, Rabbi Lezer follows Beis Shammai's opinion, not surprisingly because Beis Shammai, uh, Rabbi Lezer is a student of Beis Shammai and of course the Chachamim would follow the majority opinion which is usually Beis Hillel. That helps us to understand the debate as explained by the Rambam at the end of Chagiga. The Rambam comes from a position which is Rabbi Eliezer probably follows the same universal principle of Beis Shammai which is look at things holistically and simply and Beis Hillel is the opinion of the Chachamim, which is look at all of the details and extrapolate based on the circumstances and, and the context. So therefore, Rabbi Eliezer says, says, the coating, which is made of copper or gold, should, by rights, be susceptible to impurity. Why? He says, look at the whole picture. What is the function of this item? A mizbeach. And what kind of a mizbeach? A, a golden mizbeach or a copper mizbeach? Okay, that's what it is. It is copper. It is gold. Therefore, it's susceptible to impurity. Ah, if you analyze it more closely, you'll realize that the gold and silver is just a thin veneer on the outside. That doesn't actually make a difference because I look at the holistic picture. So therefore, the Mizbeach should be Tame. But thank God the Torah saves us because the Torah says, no, the Mizbeachs have a special category. They are considered like earth and therefore not susceptible to Tuma. The Chachamim come along and they say, Rabbi Eliezer, you don't have to bring out the Pasuk that says the Mizbeach is like the ground because there is actually no reason to be worried in the first place. Yes, of course, we look at them and say, that's a golden Mizbeach and that's a copper Mizbeach and therefore we think of them as metal objects which are susceptible to impurity. Look deeper. It looks like it's metal. Which is why they're called that. Once I look at this with a magnifying glass, I recognize that the gold is only a coat and the copper is only a coat. And as a general principle, anything that is a covering is secondary to and actually loses its identity to the broader keli that it services. And therefore, and so therefore, the coating loses its halachic identity to the item that it coats. These misbachos are not susceptible to impurity, so the cover makes no difference. 
And so those details really determine the reality of the whole situation. And therefore, as far as the Chachamim are concerned, in the Rambam's view at least, I don't need a Pasuk to excuse the Mizbachos from becoming impure. Logic tells me that they can't become impure because the thing that might have caused them the problem, the veneer on the outside, loses its identity against the bigger Kali on the inside. Now we can leap, link and loop the end of the Masechta back to the beginning. Because if you go to the beginning of the Masechta, you will find that there's a debate between Basil and Beishamah, which reflects exactly the same themes that we have discussed, and as we've just illustrated, are the themes at the end of the Masechta. The Mishnah Rishonah Shonino, the very first Mishnah teaches us, Beishamah Oimrim, Beishamah says, the oil that you had to bring when you came up to the Beishamikdash on Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, had to have a value of Shtei Kesef, two silver pieces. Vahachagiga, and the Chagiga, which was a Shlomim offering that you got to eat part of it, Ma'a Kesef, was a single Ma'a of silver. Beishamah Oimrim, the opposite, Hara'iya, Ma'a Kesef, Vahachagiga, Shtei Kesef, According to Beisilo, the Re'ia is a cheaper animal and the Chagiga is a more expensive animal. Right, as we've just explained, according to Beis Hillel, the Chagiga is the, the uh, more expensive of the two Karbonis. According to Beis the Re'ia is the more expensive. Why? So, Gemara says, Beishamai's argument is, the Oilas Re'iyah is going up on the Mizbeach. That's all for Hashem. Don't you think it should be the more expensive item? Logically, he says, the, 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 the value, the shoivi of the carbon that's going to Hashem has to be more valuable than that which is being retained for people. Basil will say, and Basil will argue the opposite. Adir Abba Chagiga Adifa di Isbo Shte Achilois. Basil says, yeah, but the Koyhanim, and even according to some opinions, the fact that you eat the carbon already makes it two types of Govoya. The oil, uh, yes, of course, it's dedicated to Hashem on the Mizbeach. The Shlomim is dedicated to Hashem on the Mizbeach, and then it's dedicated to Hashem again when the Koyhanim eat it. So therefore, it's a double dedication to Hashem, it needs to be more expensive or more valuable. Meaning, if I look at carbonis generally, would say, look at the story at face value. If something is going to Hashem, it's got to be the most valuable of all the carbonis. But when I analyze the details of the story, then as Basil says, actually on analysis, the exact opposite is, is, is more true. Achilas koyhanim, the fact that the koyhanim are going to eat this carbon, vegam achilas boalim, and at least to some extent, the fact that you and I, who bring the carbon shlamim, are going to eat from it, be carbon afi mitzvah, that's also a mitzvah. So therefore, even when the humans eat their part of the carbon, it is also part of the carbon that is given to Hashem. Right, 
So therefore, according to Beis Hillel, if you have a carbon that doubles the value you're giving to Hashem, because there's the carbon and the mitzvah of the Achila of the Kohanim and of the owners, then it certainly is worth double as much. Same shita. Do we look at the general picture or do we get into the details and analyze what's going on? Now that we know how the Rambam views the opinion of the Rabbonin and aligns it with Beis Hillel, then we can look at the very last thing the Gemara says and how the two comments actually relate to each other. What does the Gemara say? One thing they say is that Talmidei Chachamim are immune to the fires of Gehenim. And then they say that, likewise, even the sinners of Israel are also immune to the fires of Gehenim. And of course, those two statements, which follow very soon after the discussion about the coating of the Mizbech, must be linked as well. The flow is this. After the Gemara goes through what the Mishnah discusses and explains it about the Mizbeach and what its role is. Explaining that by bringing Karbonus, that is what makes the Beis HaMikdash the place of the Divine Presence as instructed in the Rambam. And of course, once the Gemara has analyzed the Rabbonin's view as the Rambam explains it, which is that the coating is bottled to the Mizbeach and therefore can't become Tomei, and that's what you understand once you've done a proper analysis. So once you've discussed the principle of how Hashem dwells in the Beis Amikdash, the Gemara naturally now moves to how Hashem dwells within every single one of us, which is the ultimate goal of the whole process. So we're all supposed to create our own personal base amikdash through our own efforts, and it also has the same details and two sides of the debate that we're seeing over here in the Gemara. When you do a proper analysis, which is what Beis Hillel tells us we need to do, and Beis Hillel is always the majority view, so that's what we practice in Halacha. The really valuable realization that you get is that all of the negative, even of the so-called sinners, is not who they really are. It's just an outer coat. It's a veneer. That veneer loses its own identity against the essence of who they are, who's on the inside. Because the inside of every single Jew, the essence of every single Jew is service of Hashem. That's why they're immune to the fires of Gehenna, because they're fundamentally good on the inside. And this ties in beautifully with the opinion of Basila, which is, on the face of it, just a story of how to speak it to a groom about his bride, but has a far deeper message. How you look at a Jew. As expressed in the debate, says, Tell it like it is. Describe the person as they are, with all of their flaws. And Basil says, See the beauty. 
In fact, it's even alluded to in the names of the two protagonists. We know very well that the metaphor of husband and wife, bride and groom, always applies to Hashem and the Jewish people. So, depending on which perspective you look at it from, you'll come to a different conclusion. Shammai comes from the world of Shom or Choysev. Everything has to be measured, everything has to be calculated. Therefore, Beis Shammai always looks at measure the path that a person has taken. Therefore, Beishamai's view is you want to assess a Jewish person, do a full audit. Absolutely objectively. See where they're really holding. That's how you'll choose to respond to them. Whereas Hillel comes to the word which means the light shines. Which means Basila looks to illuminate the deeper perspective on every scenario. And their attitude is that the deeper truth is what determines the reality on the ground. They say every single Jew, if you know how to look deeply enough, is a beautiful, dedicated bride of Hashem. They made what at face value actually looked like a pretty irreverent reference. You're comparing a wife to buying something in the marketplace and then saying you should praise the person because he bought it. What they're saying is, Basilel is highlighting, look, they chose to invest in this particular item called the Jewish people who he chose as his nation. Obviously, if they chose this particular asset, it must be absolutely beautiful and holy. Ah, you don't see it? Your inability to see the value does not rob it of its value. Goes without saying that if the Abishta chose this bride, it's obviously the most beautiful bride. The Jewish people is the most beautiful bride. Except in order to get to this point, you need to achieve, as the Gemara says, more you've got to be on good terms with people. That means a person who's invested within the normal human experience is aware of the challenges. Such a person who appreciates how challenging it could be to do the right thing will also be able to appreciate that the person maybe succumbs here and there, but fundamentally is a good person. And that gives us an incredible take-home message. That's our lesson. If you notice something negative about a fellow Jew, you might say, oh, that person is spiritually disabled. God forbid. How can I have a relationship with such a person who is in such a bad place? Says to a person who thinks that way, Tell me something. Why do you insist on looking at this person just through a physical perspective? Don't judge a person by the externalities. 
Hare Hakadosh Baruch Hu, think about it. Hakadosh Baruch Hu bochaloi velokhoi kemekach. David chose this person as his valued asset. He's obviously the most beautiful bride in Hashem's eyes. Allowed you to detect something negative in another person? Must be because Abish wants you to illuminate the situation and to help that person to discover their pinimius. Not that you should be allowed to criticize or dis- distance yourself from the person. You saw it so that you can help them. And as long as we follow Basil's guidance uh, during the course of Godless, which we have to do because the halacha always follows Basil. We don't even entertain the possibility of taking the strict, hectic view of Basil. So we choose not to look at the externalities. But to look deeply until we can detect and see and appreciate their real value. That they're this beautiful bride. Which will then prompt us, obviously, to help coax out of this person their deep beauty on the inside. If we do that, that will prime us to be able to merit that moment of reunion between Hashem and us. And then we can follow the stricter or harsher views of Beishamai and that's how it will be then you know why we can because because all the negativity will be removed and at that point we'll see on the outside what really should have been reflected on the inside that every single one of us is absolutely beautiful absolutely connected absolutely in line with Hashem and in Yitzhah Hashem we should be zeichet to that immediately.